Uh, we are picking back up in a study that we actually began way back in September. So in September of last year, we cracked open the book of Ephesians to begin to work our way through it. And if you're here for the first time or the past couple weeks, I encourage you, you can jump online, you can go back. If you're interested in any of that history or the relationship that Paul has with the church in Ephesus or how any of those kind of pieces, we go into it pretty in depth back in the weeks of September and early October. So I encourage you to go back, take a listen. We're not going to dive all the way back into it this morning, but that's a great kind of history if you're interested in the backbone of Ephesians and kind of what we're doing. But our goal is really to begin to move through these, these chapters of this incredible letter and begin to explore it in the depth in which Paul meant it to be read. And we talked about the idea that Paul really had this intense relationship with the, uh, with the Ephesians because he spent so much time with them. For almost three years, Paul spent time on a daily basis in Ephesus teaching. It was the one church that he spent the most time at. Uh, he had the most impact on their lives in terms of theology and who they were. And so as he writes them this letter from house arrest in Rome, he's essentially saying, it's time for you, my sort of crown jewel student, to be the church that you're called to be. And so that's what we've been exploring. We've been exploring it from a nature of looking at it pretty in depth and asking ourselves, what does that mean to me? We've been looking at small pieces of text, one, two, and three verses at a time. Uh, we know that's going to take us a while to move through it, but we're great with that. We've made it all the way into chapter two. And we picked up about three weeks ago, starting in chapter two, where Paul is doing something really intentional. He's getting everybody on the same page because he's getting ready to talk to the Ephesians about what unity looks like. And so he's setting them up by helping them understand who they all are apart from Christ, no matter what their background is, where they came from, what side of the city they were raised, what their family name is, who they were, where they're from. He's getting them all to the place to show them essentially that apart from Christ, they are all nothing, right? And that in, God, in Christ, God did something remarkable for them. And they've all been brought to the same place in which they are one in Christ. And next week, we're going to begin the process of exploring this unity that Paul is calling this church to, this reconciled unity. So we know that Christ died to reconcile you and me to himself. We also know that Christ died to reconcile all of creation to itself through Christ. And so the church becomes this instrument of reconciliation, ambassadors of it, if you will. And Paul's going to remind the church that even in these difficult times, they are called to be the picture of unity in Christ. And he's getting them to this place by reminding them where they came from and that none of them have some special talent or gift in which they are higher or better or you know, more holy than anybody else. And so that's what Paul's kind of doing. This week we're going to look at the reality of what salvation means for each of us and how it is all the great leveling field for people. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and kind of thumb over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10 this morning. But here's where we were to get there. So what we learned in verses 1 through 3 were essentially this that we are fully dead in our sin, right? You can remember this from a couple weeks ago. Paul's very clear. We are dead in our sin and our transgressions and in where we used to live when we were slaves to the ruler of this world, where he says that essentially because we were dead in our sin, we were slave to Satan and the sinful desires that welled up within us because we were wholly evil. And we, because of that, were due the nature of God's wrath. So what we see in those first three verses are this stark reality, this sort of pit of despair, as we talked about, this hot tub of despair, that is really this picture of we are dead in our sin, we are due that penalty because we are slaves to the ruler of this world. We are chasing our own gratify and gratifying our own sinful desires through conformity um, and through comparison, and we are due the nature of God's wrath. And that's where we spent two weeks. 
two weeks ago. And then last week, we, we transferred that movement where Paul says, yes, this is who you were, but this is now who you are in Christ. And he explains to us that in this incredible thing, God, who is great at love and rich in mercy, did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that essentially he rescued us because of his great abounding love. And in that love, we have been reconciled to Christ to have both a true real relationship with Christ here on earth and the promise of eternal life in heaven. And God did that for a couple of really amazing reasons. One, because he loves us, period. He just deeply loves us. And two, because we could be a full display of his glory forever. And so we get to that place, right? And Paul's going to take it one step further this morning. and He's going to talk to us about what salvation really is and what it means for us now. And then, starting next week, we're going to see how he calls the church together to be this picture, this mosaic, this beautiful representation of Christ to the world. So we're going to be in those last few verses there in that section, 8 through 10, and we're going to explore this idea of salvation through a deeper look at the lens of grace. And it's going to take us even further down this road of gratitude for what God has done because we cannot do any of it on our own. So before we do that, let's just take a moment. Let's pray. Let's ask God to teach our hearts, and then we'll work through this thing bit by bit this morning. Lord, we are infinitely grateful that you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, not one of us deserves your grace, your love, your favor. We are sinful to the core. You tell us that we are dead and we are due the nature of your wrath because of that. It's hard to say, it's hard to believe, but the reality is it's just true. But you, God, but God, loved us so deeply, so rich in love, so great at mercy, Lord, that you rescued us, that you sent your son Jesus to lay his life down, that if we put our hope and trust in you, we have this eternal life, and then you tell us that this eternal life has some incredible things attached to it. One, true, real, abundant life here on earth, not a masquerade, but real life that knows the one who created us, that finds joy in the things that make the heartbeat of God move, or that aren't stirred or afraid of the things of the world, but find peace but also long for a true home, a promise of eternal salvation with you in which we are guaranteed as followers of Christ. So while we are here, we're fully alive, but we anticipate a true homecoming in eternity. And all this you have lavished on us, and we've done nothing to deserve it. So this morning as we explore this idea of salvation, what it is and what it means and how it should change us, Lord, I pray that you would just press those truths on our heart. Help us find the great, great joy that the things I did today will not cost me for eternity because of Christ. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here this morning, and just ask the Lord to teach you. A lot of these things are, are, are elementary truths of the gospel that maybe you've heard a hundred times, but they're just still so real and rich and powerful. Ask the Lord to teach your heart something fresh and new this morning. Take a moment as we do each Sunday morning and pray for someone around you. Even if you don't know them or you haven't met them yet or, or maybe it's your spouse or your kiddo, just, just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. As we say each week, everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is not about you. Care about the spiritual movement and development of the people around you. Be a part of the community of God. Pray that God would move in them and do something in them. Just pray for the people around you this morning.
Lord, we turn our morning over to you. You are King Eternal. We ask you to teach our hearts, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So all of that kind of backstory to get us to these verses 8 through 10, and then we're going to take a, a real turn next week and begin to explore this idea of unity, which is actually going to become a pretty big theme for the rest of Paul's letter. But this is what we see as Paul wraps up this idea about our sinful condition and the grace and mercy and love of Jesus and how that leads us to this place of salvation. So let's look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2 this morning. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul kind of makes this transition by saying, listen, for it is by grace that you have been saved. And we've talked a lot about mercy. We've talked a lot about love. We've kind of glossed over this idea of grace a little bit. So let's define it real quickly so that we know that we're on the same page. So from a biblical standpoint, the idea of grace is essentially God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. So when we think about grace, it's this idea that God gives us favor when we don't deserve it. So we didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It's not because you've got a good personality, good abs, nice-looking guy or girl, working really hard, that you deserve some kind of favor because God says, they're one of the best that I've made. I mean, I made some duds. I made some good ones. There's a good one. They deserve a little extra, right? Like, we don't deserve God's love or favor, right? So the first idea of grace is that it's undeserved favor. You did nothing to deserve God to even look favorably upon you, okay? The second part of that is this unmerited love, meaning that we don't do anything to merit God's love, meaning essentially that we can't perform for God, we can't work hard enough for God, we can't do enough things to where God says, I really love you, thank you for doing that, right? So this is hard for us because every one of our earthly relationships is built around this idea of merited love. Even the way that we interact with spouses and the way children interact with their parents, like when someone does something really nice for you, right, like your spouse does something like takes your car to get washed or takes a trash out without being asked or, you know, buys you a gift or brings you dinner, whatever it is, our response is usually, thank you, I love you so much. Not because it's always tied to that gift, but that gift brings about this desire to say, you've done something good, therefore you are merited or you are credited or I am giving you my love. God's love biblically doesn't work like that at all. He gives us this love, right? We talked about it last week because he's so good at it when we don't deserve it. So God's love is present and is given and not when we do anything for it. He loves us before we ever loved him, before we ever tried to do anything nice or good, before you ever helped the old lady across the street with her, her groceries. God loved you deeply. You did nothing to earn it or to merit it. So grace, by its biblical definition, is God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. So if you look at those verses, right, in verse 8, we see this. For it is by grace you have been saved. So it is by God's undeserved favor and unmerited love that you have been saved. Now what we're going to learn in these verses is that salvation has some really important key things, which we've already heard from Paul, but need to be reiterated. And the first is this, that that salvation is by grace alone. 
Paul sets it up right there, right? So it is by grace, God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love, that you have been saved. So salvation comes from grace alone. Now, this should not be a surprise. We've hit on it for the past three weeks, but Paul is hammering it home because it's vital to understand in terms of Christian doctrine and theology that you do nothing and God does everything. So you are saved by grace alone, not by any account or work of your own. This is actually a doctrine that sets apart Christianity from a whole lot of other world religions and cults that believe that our effort and somehow is merited towards our salvation. For example, Mormonism, cult, terrible theology, all kinds of problems there. But one of the major problems they have with the idea of grace is they believe in God's grace. As long as you do the majority of the effort, God will reach down and give you the last little bit. It's why your performance here on earth is so important and tied to your their crazy afterlife story. Because you have to do so much of the work, and if you don't, you jeopardize your eternity. But God's grace is just enough to reach down and do the last little bit. Paul says God's grace is actually all of it. You can't even begin to climb out of that hole at all. You are so dead and so steeped in sin and so do the nature of God's wrath that you can't even reach your hand up to ask for help. Grace is being saved, salvation is being saved by grace absolutely and totally alone. And that's just one example of the way many religions look at our performance work towards God. And it wasn't just that, because Judaism has steeped in this idea, too, of I've got to perform for the Lord. In fact, Jesus gives this great parable that kind of sums it up. You may remember it. It's this story out of Luke 18 where Jesus gives this parable about the tax collector, right, and the sinner. And this is what he says in verse 18. I'll just read it to you. He says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, and they looked down upon everybody else, Jesus told this parable, right? So he's, he's got a very specific audience. To those who are compelled by their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. In other words, I'm pretty good morally. And the rest of the world, well, they're kind of a mess. This is the parable Jesus gives. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everybody who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus gives this parable and says, listen, even in the religious community, right, two guys go to worship. One who is the epitome of religious elitism. One who we all look at and say, that's what I aspire to be when it comes to religious doctrine and understanding a Pharisee. They not only held positions of religious hierarchy, they held positions of, uh, of community hierarchy, of political hierarchy. They wore robes. They were looked at other people as the epitome of what it might be to achieve some kind of religious pinnacle. And then you have the tax collector who everybody hated. It wasn't even just like a normal sinner. It was a sinner that stole from all the other people, including other sinners. The tax collectors were just grifters. They would take things off the top. They were con men. They would be one for you, two for me kind of deal when you paid. They were ruthless and mean. We know all this about them. Both of these people go to the temple to pray, right? Tax collector stands up in front of everybody, raises those arms and says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. That I don't make the mistakes that they make. 
That I'm not like evildoers, robbers, right? Or adulterers. Or even like this tax collector over there standing off in the distance. I give a tenth of everything that I've got. I pray. I do the things I'm supposed to do. God, I'm grateful that I'm not like that. And of course, the tax collector in the story stands off to the distance, beats his breast, won't look up to heaven, and is like, God, I am, know that I am sinful, and yet I live in this sin. Please have mercy on me. And Jesus says, who goes home justified? Well, obviously the one who had the authentic encounter with the risen God and realized that he could do nothing. The Pharisee shows up saying, God, I have done three quarters of the work for you. Like, all you've got to do is just bless me now because, look, I've done the hard work. I've abstained from adultery. I'm not like them. I haven't robbed anyone, at least in my own mind. I'm not sinful like these people. Like, I've done the effort. I pray. I give. Like, here I am with all my services. That's that part of us that believes deeply that salvation is somehow tied to what we do. The reality is sin is the great leveling field of all humanity. It knocks every single person, every kind of person that draws breath to the exact same place what we learned two weeks ago, completely and totally dead. The tax collector, the one who was intentionally robbing people, the sinner, the one everyone hated, and the religious elite who had just as much sin are all on the exact same playing field, which is fully dead and incapable of doing anything on their own, which means that you and myself are in the same category. No matter how religious you think you are, how morally straight you think you are, or what you abstain from, or how much resentment you have from that person two aisles over because you know what they've done, no matter how you peg yourself above them, the reality is, is that the sin in your life levels us all. It's really easy to look down on the world when you think you're above it, and that's the point that Jesus is making. And the point that Paul echoes in Christ is that you are not above anything. You deserve to die. And that's not pretty. And not only do you deserve to die, you deserve the nature of God's wrath for the thought that you had six seconds ago. But salvation, right, is by grace alone. No amount of reaching your hands up, standing on the temple steps, crying out for anything helps. The only reason is because of God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. And he says there's two things in here, right, that are really clear about it. It says them in verse 8 and 9. He says that it is not from yourself and it's not by works. So here's what we know. If God's grace, right, is his undeserved favor, his unmerited love, there's two real things about it. One, it doesn't come from you. That's what we've just been exploring. And two, it's not by your works. You cannot do any of it. It's hard for us because this is how we try and please people around us. For most of us, or a lot of us at least, we are people pleasers in our nature. Think about the way that we long for affection from our earthly parents. Maybe your father, maybe your mother, maybe both of them, maybe a sibling, maybe a boss, maybe a friend, maybe someone that you just long for their affection for. So what do we do, right? We do something in us to try and earn that or merit it or work towards it because we need that response from them. What Paul tells us about salvation is that it's by God's grace alone, not by anything in you, and not by any works. Not by any. That literally means that you can be the most amazing person in the universe in terms of doing nice things for people and still be headed to hell. 
Because it's not about what you do. It's just not. And it's nothing in you. You weren't born with a little more special kind of religious heart that makes you more admirable to the Lord. In sin, we are all dead. There's nothing you can do about it, and your works won't save you. Salvation is by grace alone. Listen to what Paul says right after that. He says, salvation by grace, you have been saved through faith. So salvation is actually received by faith. Now think about this. So salvation isn't something that God just stamps on you, forces upon you. On some level in our humanness, we have to receive it. It's very passive. We don't do anything to earn it. We can't go and get it, but it must be received. In other words, our hearts have to trust Christ. This is what salvation asks of humanity, is that simply we trust the God who has done all the work. So on some level, what it requires is not work or effort or a pure heart or all these things. It requires you to die enough to yourself to surrender and trust to Christ. It's received by faith. Because you know that you don't have what it takes to do it on your own. God, I cannot get out of this pit, this hole, this thing. I'm dead and I'm dying, and yet you are offering me life, and I'm just going to trust you. That is essentially what faith boils down to in Scripture when it comes to salvation, is the ability to understand what you can't and who you aren't and who God is and what he did. God, I trust that I can't save myself, and I know who I am. It's a tax collector standing outside the temple, unable to look at heaven, beating his breast, saying, I am a sinful mess. I don't even deserve to be in the presence of the temple, much less the God who occupies it. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, who goes home justified? The one who recognizes that he can do nothing and simply receives what's offered. It's hard, right? It's humbling. It's the real spot in this of saying, God, I can't do it, which is really hard for us in all of our humanity because we are taught, driven in us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to do whatever it takes to get up and get back on that horse or that thing again until you conquer it. Salvation is the part of us that realizes there is no getting on anything. We can't do anything apart from Christ, and therefore, God, I just receive from you what is freely offered. So salvation is through grace alone, and it's a gift which is received by faith. God doesn't just cram it upon you. At some point in time, we have to recognize our own deadness and say, God, I need what you offer, and I trust you. There's the faith component. It doesn't take an action. It doesn't take a secret prayer. It doesn't take all these things, right? It just simply takes a recognition that, God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. Paul says about this gift, right? He says salvation, right, which is by grace alone, God's undeserved favor, his unmerited love. It's received by faith because it is a gift. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So here's the incredible thing, right, is that 
Paul doubles down on this idea of saying, look, this is not something you can earn, saying essentially it's a gift, and a gift by nature can't be added to, especially a gift from God, right? Like if there's ever a perfect gift giver, right, it's probably not your spouse. It's probably God. He's probably really good at it. Gifts by nature can't be added to it or remove something from the gift, right? So if you think about it, the gift itself is totally sufficient. If something had to be added to it, like God was giving you this, but you had to do that last little piece, that last reach up, that last thing, then the gift itself is not sufficient. But this gift that God gives is fully and totally sufficient. And in that gift, while it is totally free, we talked about this in kind of back in chapter 1, while it's totally free, it is also deeply costly. Because grace in itself, while given freely, costs deeply. And it costs, obviously costs a father or son, it costs Jesus his life and all the humiliation things he went through. But for the believer, it costs and it should cost us. Not to earn it or to get it or to have it, but once we've secured it through faith, it should cost us ourselves, our lives. It moves us to death to self, right? We talked about the idea that this idea was made really popular, right, in the, ninth, in the kind of the turn of the century with Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he, he kind of juxtaposed this idea of cheap and costly grace, and he talks about for the follower of Christ, grace should be costly, meaning it should cost my very self. My life, death to me, I want what Christ wants for me. If my following Jesus costs me nothing, then have I fully, really given my life to him? Because when I give my life to Christ, what transpires is God takes my sinfulness, he exchanges it for his righteousness. My story becomes his story, and I am compelled and moved to honor, follow, and worship him. And that is not easy, it's costly. It might cost me relationships, places at work, things that I do, the way that I think about materialism or money or even marriage or sex or all these things, it changes the world dynamic and turns it upside down because grace is costly. It costs us our worldly way of thinking and living. That we cannot say yes to Jesus yet live and walk fully in a worldly mentality. When we receive this gift of grace and salvation that's offered solely through Christ, right, By grace alone, we receive it. Something in us has changed. In fact, Paul tells us in Corinthians, we are made fully new. And in that newness, that new creation, things begin to transform in our life and it begins to cost us the things that we once held dear because we are holding on to all the wrong things. It costs us our idea of what uh, status looks like, of what materialism looks like, of even what our place here on this world looks like. Grace is costly because it costs us our life in a most beautiful and incredible sense because you don't want what this world offers. We talked about this in week one. If the pinnacle of this world, right, is its recognition and the gratifying of its sinful desires and its chasing of its its sinful patterns, it all leads to death and emptiness. Why rack up, as Jesus would say, a world full of things that you can't take with you that ultimately just lead to death? When you follow Christ, you begin to exchange those things for true life. Meaning the things that move the heartbeat of God begin to move yours. And you no longer desire or want to desire the things that the world says you need. I don't care what the world thinks about me. 
I don't care about comparing my life to the people around me or contrasting my life to what other people have. I don't care about social media trying to tell me who I need to be or what I need to look like. I don't care about the world telling me that I've got to have so much material possessions in order to be worth something. Those things don't matter to me anymore because in Christ, my life has changed. That grace has exchanged that worldly picture for something that's much deeper and more real. It cost me. And if you've ever done or engaged in mission on some level or been to a place in the world where someone has truly given their life to Christ in a culture where that culture is hostile to believers or to followers of Christ, you will realize that grace is costly. If you've been in places like Asia or different places around the world where we've been or we have missionaries, following Christ can cost them their life. Certainly their family, their freedom, their jobs. We've seen it. Our friends in China. Here it's harder, right? Because the things that grace costs us are sort of easy to sweep under the rug. But the reality is is that the call of following Christ is a call to come and die. Die to myself and say yes to Jesus. Not what I want, Lord, but what you want. Where are you leading? Where are you taking me? What do you desire for my family? Where do you want me to work? What do you want me to do with my life? It changes our set of questions. Instead of, God, what do I get? How do I deserve? Or what do I deserve? It's, God, where are you leading? Where are you taking? How do I honor you? How do I worship you? How do I lead my wife or my family or my husband and in categories and places that honor you? How do we as a family develop a ministry heartbeat? How do we love our neighbors, stick out in our neighborhood? How do we let the world know the God that has changed us? And that's the reality of a grace that is a free gift, but costly at the point of following Jesus. And we always think about costly in terms of like hard, but reality, the things that it costs are the things that we should want to remove from our life anyway. That's the beauty of grace, right, is it peels this garbage away. We don't need to hang on to the lies of the world anymore. We've been actually set free from them. And so the things that I'm being, are costing me are the things that are tearing me apart anyway. So salvation, right, which is by grace alone, which is received by faith and is offered as a free gift, is costly in terms of once we receive this gift, it should change the way that we live. And this is how Paul says it should begin to change us, first with an understanding and then finally with how we live. Let's look at that last verse. So this gift, right, is not from yourselves. It's it's a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Now listen to this. For we are God's, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So two really important things here. So all this to recognize, first and foremost, that you are God's workmanship. So salvation is God working in you, not you working for God. But Paul takes that one step further by actually saying, you yourselves are the very art by which the workman has created. So you are the workmanship of God. You are the final product. You are this work of art that God has labored for and made. You are not flawed. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are the workmanship of creator God, the one who formed the earth and the trees and the stars and blew them into motion, holds them all together, right? That God calls you his workmanship. And that word there in the Greek really actually means this final product, this piece of art, this thing that was made. So what Paul says is that as as a result of salvation by grace alone, which you received by faith, 
that is free to you but costs you the very things of the world which God is pulling out of you anyway. He has made you into something beautiful and amazing. You are his work of art. You are his craftsmanship. You are his final product. Now, I don't know how you grew up, but for some of us, that's hard to believe. I look in the mirror and I see a big, flawed piece of mess. I see a sinful, broken person. I see a tragedy of this and that. I don't see beauty. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about literally from the inside out. I see the mistakes, the way I failed as a father, the way I failed as a parent, the way I failed as a, a husband, a pastor, a friend, of just a constant failure. I don't see anything that would resemble a work of art or something that God made or something that he completed and calls his. But it's really hard to escape that in Scripture, right? Psalm 139 is this incredible picture in which David's wrestling with some of these same things, basically saying, I'm doomed. And God reminds him of who he is. In Psalm 139, he essentially says this, you were created, right? David says, you created my inmost being, God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, meaning you made me. I've been made by you, and all your works are wonderful. I know that fully well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days for me were ordained and written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Even David recognizes this thing that he is king over all of Israel. He's got unlimited power, if you will, in terms of kingship. And yet he recognizes and the reality is that he is simply the work of art of God, even in his sinful state. And we know David to be a full-blown sinner, right? An adulterer who covers up his own adultery by murder. And yet he recognizes that in that, his own doing, he's nothing but in, in God, who made him, who knit him together, he is workmanship. He is not a disaster. God has remade him and reworked him and knit him together. And here's the reality is that for a lot of us, we have to believe those truths about ourselves. We don't have to believe that we're inherently good, but what we have to believe is that in Christ, we are saved and redeemed and made new. So all those flawed places that we see have been covered by the nature and blood of Christ. God calls you his workmanship. And this is the incredible thing about God, right? is that because he does that, he makes this beautiful work of art, he wants to use that workmanship to change the world. I find this fascinating. Of all the ways that God could demonstrate his grace and love to humanity, he chooses to use a bunch of flawed and broken and sinful and remade people. I mean, think about the way Christ chose the disciples, this ragtag group of just disastrous sinful people that the world would look down upon. The world knew weren't educated. They came from a region where they had a crazy dialect and they were hard to understand. Most were uneducated and fished for a living. And they were going to go up against the religious elite in terms of philosophy and theology. They were going to be the great advocate for Almighty God. Think about how God announced his presence of the coming of Christ the King. Did he show up to a, a bunch of really powerful synod leaders? No, he showed up to a bunch of shepherds, 13 and 12-year-old boys in the middle of a field, to announce the coming of Almighty God. And then what does God do with the church? He takes a group of disastrous people which can't even get along. Read any of Paul's letters. They fight all the time. 
They can't agree about anything. They can't even agree in 1 Corinthians about who they follow. They argue about baptism and its methods and language and what we do. And yet God takes this ragtag group of people and he calls them to become one so that they can become the image of Christ to the world. And this is why he does it. Listen to this last part. For you are God's workmanship. And he's not talking just to you. He's talking to all those folks in Ephesus and all those that put their faith and hope in Christ. Right? You are God's, well, actually says we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ. So made new and alive in Christ. To do what? To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. David even says, all the days of my life were numbered and known before one even came to pass. He says, you were created. Right? You were made new in Christ, meaning that you are a new creation in Jesus. And you were created as this incredible work of art, saved by grace alone, that you received by faith, right? given to you as this gift to remake you into something incredible, to be used by God as his workmanship, as this beautiful piece of art. Why? For good works, which he has created in advance for you to do. This is where works come in as a follower of Christ. See where Paul puts works in the equation? Works come way down past the idea I've, I've been saved. Not only have I been saved, I've been made new. I've been created in this new incredible image. God has made me to this work of art. And now he has set us, all of us, myself included as a church, up to do what? To do good works. Now, good works are really simply the idea of loving God, loving people, caring for those that are broken right? Fighting for the oppressed, taking the gospel into the world, the things the church and the believers do. God has created you to do that. And he made those things in advance so that you could do them. In other words, God is going to use the church and believers to change the world. Why? Because that's in his economy how God shows his glory. That he took you, who deserves nothing but to be laying in a ditch, sorry to say it, it's true, and he turned you into something miraculous and amazing and redeemed you and saved you by which you just received by faith, nothing else. He remade you and gave you a heart for people. And then he's going to use you to change the world. And the world's going to look and say, huh, if God can change that fool, then surely his grace is good enough for me. And if God can use us and this group of people in Ephesus from all these crazy backgrounds and stories, people that used to worship gods and held silver like um, statues in their yards, worshiping and honoring and fighting for themselves and clinging to, what, clinging to what's good for them, if God can break them and remake them and mold them and free them and use them to change the world, to do these good works which he has prepared for them to do. That is how the church becomes effective when the church recognizes who it is, what God has done in us, and what he has made us for. God has not made us to sit in here and pat each other on the back. God has not made us to gather outside of the community of people, huddle together, entertain each other, and build playgrounds for our kids. God has actually taken the church, rescued them from the depths, set them upright through his grace alone, remade them, calls them his workmanship, and sends the church into the world to do the things in which God has done in Jesus. We are the hands and feet and movement of Christ. We are not created to be a social club. We were remade to take the gospel to the world so that the world would look upon the heartbeat of these incredible works of art, not because they're perfect, but because what God has done 
and say, God's grace must be real. For the believer, right, this is a great call to unity. I'm better than no one. And we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks. In fact, Paul would even tell himself, I am the chief of all sinners. This room is made up of people who are the chief of all sinners, redeemed and saved by grace alone, received only by faith, which is a gift, remade by God as his workmanship and the beauty of his hands to be sent into the world to do the things that God has prepared in advance for you to do. God has a plan for you. This is your call in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reality of the gospel and the truth of this message, the power that comes from knowing it and understanding it, realizing that it is all you 100% and totally and none of us, that salvation is by grace alone, fully by grace alone. We can do nothing. We receive it only by trusting you in faith. It is a gift, a gift that can be costly because it costs us our worldly way of thinking. But yet, God, you have made us and remade us. We are new creations. We are your workmanship. We are your work of art, your completed project. And you have made these incredible things for us to do, to love you, to love people, to take the gospel to the world, to fight for those that can't fight for themselves, to free the oppressed, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, to exist out there as a sent people, not in here as a reborn group of people that just enjoy our company, but as a church sent into the world equally broken, yet equally redeemed with a message of reconciliation and redemption on our lips for a world that is steeped in darkness. Lord, it is by grace alone that we are saved and by grace alone in which we are sent out. So as we close our time in worship, Lord, make those things press deeply into our soul. For it is your undeserved favor and your unmerited love by which we know grace at all. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Jesus, mighty King of heaven, Thou, O Lord, our guide shall be. Thy commission we rely on. We will follow none but Thee. Let's sing that again. Jesus, mighty King. Jesus, mighty
Sing that again. Sin shall never, sin shall never be our master. Captives of our blessed dead in our sin, we were made alive in Christ, and that aliveness comes solely through salvation by grace alone, of which we are the workmanship of God, made by him, created for him, to do things out there, to exist in a place where we become the hands and feet of God to the world, to tell them that same truth, that God loves them, and he has died to save them and redeem them. Take that message, make it literally bleed from your soul as you tell the world about the God that saved you. Go in peace.